For the sake of transparency, uh, let me tell you I'm a ringer. I come to the Saturday morning meditation, so I have first-hand experience. I don't know what it is exactly that has um, qualified uh, me to say that uh, Paul Titian has paid his dues. Um, you can judge a tree by the fruit. If you want to talk to me during coffee hour, I can tell you at least three things that he's said to me uh, that have resulted in my being able to uh, change my life uh, in positive ways. Uh, he's going to talk today. The power of rules, rituals, and routines. So let's see what comes of that. Thank you. Bob is the best introduction. <laughs> Last time I joined you guys, I think he finished with, let's hope it's not too boring. <laughs> Thank you. 
Jack is here with my brothers and sisters. Um, on behalf of Yorktown Zen, I will say we are very, very grateful uh, for you giving us a home uh, where we can practice. Uh, if it's okay, can I can I sit? That's usually. said I have 30 minutes? It's 11.30. Okay, so let's get to it. Um, the, the talk today is going to be a little bit different than I think what you're typically um, uh, enjoy here. You know, it's, it's not easy uh, living as a Zen priest in America. Um, so all the Zen priests I know have some kind of workaround. Uh, in my case, I support my family with my own company. Uh, called Integra Workshops. And what we do is um, uh, we go into primarily Fortune 500 companies and teach them how to increase their productivity uh, through neuroscience. Uh, there's a long history of Zen practitioners um, and neuroscientists working closely together. Uh, many of the leading neuroscientists in the country are, in fact, Zen practitioners. Um, you probably also know that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has a special lab at MIT where that's all they work on. He sends their, he sends his leading um, uh, Buddhist priests up there as guinea pigs uh, for them to work on. And the results of some of those experiments are really quite uh, fascinating and edifying. So what I'd like to do today is share with you some of that research, what's happening uh, in terms of the brain when we worship, when we go about our life. Uh, what's interesting uh, to me also is uh, Sydney and I sit on at least two interfaith um, committees. I'm on four. You know, as you know, I'm sort of the, the token Buddhist of Northern Westchester side. But MLK is always a busy day, so I'm incredible. Uh, <laughs> my parents' scene, but um, as I hang out with all these clergy. Uh, depending on the community, we're taking on different challenges, but there's a, there's certain themes that come up over and over again in all houses of faith right now. And I would say the two biggest ones uh, that clergy uh, fetch a lot about is one, uh, declining membership. You know, when they're not filling the, the pews like they used to. And the other big complaint is people don't know how to pray anymore. They're, they're in the seat but they're not connected in a way that's really significant. And the clergy are frustrated. How do you teach a person how to pray? And I would argue that those two things are the same problem. That the reason for the drop in membership is the inability to connect and pray and meditate on a deep level. If people were able to do that, trust me, the, the seats would be full. So the question is, well, what? The clergy are always asking, what can we do? What can we do? And they're always coming up with new programs and, and you know, innovation and, and looking at the changing times and you know, what are the new needs of the new generation? What's Gen X one? What's Gen Z one? You know, what, how can we tailor? And I, that's all good and well and good. I back up a little bit and say, what's the neuroscience behind prayer uh, that's 
making it difficult for people to go into a deep state of prayer or meditation. And what's interesting for me is the very same things that are giving us a challenge in that front are the very same things are challenging us in the work front. The reason we're not as productive at work or in our personal life. It's all the same thing because it's all coming from the same root, which is the brain. So if we understand the neuroscience behind work, productivity, uh, all of our activities, prayer, all of these things are all tied together, if we can understand that technically a little bit more, all of those things will improve. So with your permission, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Is that okay? Because what my goal today is for you to be able to walk away with at least two solid tips on, okay, I can make these tweaks and everything in my life will improve. Good? <laughs> so when we look at the uh, structure of the brain, basically you have uh, the three, the tiers, right? You have the limbic system, uh, people call it the lizard brain, or it's, it's the oldest part of the brain. Uh, the fear of flight, uh, fight or flight uh, response is all down here. This is the oldest part of the brain, and this is the part of the brain that all living creatures on the earth share. No matter where you are on the evolutionary scale, everyone has a limbic system, because that's what enables us to survive. This part of the brain is the worst part of the brain. It is so dark and angry and violent, because those are the impulses that we've needed for hundreds of thousands of years in order to survive, right? There's a threat and you, you dig down deep and you fight and you kill that thing in order to keep your people, your tribe, your species alive. So if you've survived to this point, you have a strong limbic system. And we, as sort of on the apex scale, uh, our limbic systems are pretty strong uh, as human beings. Above that, you have the, the subcortex, uh, which really has to do with attraction and desire. Right, so let's assume you've evolved to the state that you now have the ability to pick and choose things. You have to have a certain level of strength to be able to pick and choose uh, things in your life, like what you choose to eat and where you choose to live and who you choose to procreate with. A lot of that is driven by the central part of the brain. And then you have the, the for our purposes, the most important part of the brain, which is this area called the prefrontal cortex. This part of the brain, right behind our, our, our frontal lobe here. This is the last part of the brain that evolved as, as a human species. And you'll notice, if you look at the three, this is the largest. This is actually why it's so difficult for women to give birth, because this has become so darn big, right? It's easier to push these two things out than this, right? So as we have evolved as human beings, right, this part's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, right? It's helped our evolution, but it's physiologically, offered some challenges as well. But, so what are, the, what are the benefits of this? The benefits of this is, this is where all our rational thought comes from. Our deep thinking, our analysis, all comes from this part of the brain. This is also when you go into the lab, and you know, for example, they've done a lot of research in the last three or four years around happiness. We all wanna be happy, right? Uh, when you put a person in the fMRI, and you induce a state of happiness, what happens is this part of the brain lights up. Actually, it's the interior cortex right here. That's all in this area. So when you, when people have religious or deep spiritual responses, it's all here. When people feel a connectedness to another person or to their creator or to an organization, it's all lit up here. So we're finding our higher selves. All those things we strive to be in our life, 
all located right here, which is the reason I won't let my uh, kid play football, which he desperately wants to, because you're going to bash that part of your brain over and over again, which is the thing that elevates your life. No, that's not going to happen. Uh, and he hates me for it, but that's okay. Um, but we really need to think about the, the function and how the prefrontal cortex is designed, what it's designed to do and what it's designed not to do. Because ideally, we want to stay up here as much as possible as we go through our life. Uh, now, there was a, a conference of neuroscientists probably about seven years ago um, with all the leading uh, neuroscientists around the country. They all came together. And what they were trying to determine was this thing called overwhelm. And people talk about this all the time. I feel overwhelmed. I feel so tired. I feel cranky. And for a scientist's point of view, it, uh, they said, well, we can't really talk about it in terms of uh, neuroscience unless we know the capacity of the prefrontal cortex, right? It's at that point, this becomes overwhelmed, the decision-making shifts to other parts of the brain. And, and with some research, actually within six months, they discovered the capacity of the prefrontal cortex, yeah? And so I'm not gonna go into all that research because that's a whole other lecture, but the point being, we need to understand what this is capable of handling what it's not capable of handling. Because the point of which we give this too much to do, decision-making shifts from here to here. Decision-making shifts from our higher self to our absolute lower self. And that's why, and we've all seen this on the evening news, these people commit these atrocities, yeah? And then the, the, the journalist will go back to the person's neighborhood, to their neighbor, and say, well, you know, what was this person like? Like, could you see this coming? And they always say the same thing. Joe, he's the nicest guy in the world. He's just so normal, right? We could never have predicted this. But when you take that person in that state, when they're in that agitated state, what happens is you put them in fMRI, what this part of the brain lights up, meaning something happened in their life, this became overwhelmed, and they started making decisions with the violent, darkest parts of their brain. That's what enabled them to do it. If they were able to stay in this part of the brain, they would never have done those horrible things that they did. Now, none of us are likely to commit any of those atrocities, but I guarantee you, every one of us, and I know I see it in my life all the time, when we're overwhelmed, we start to see this other narrative coming forward, which isn't so pleasant. It's much more negative, dark, um, angry. Yes, you with me? You all feel that? Yeah. Why is that? because we're overwhelming the prefrontal cortex. So if we want to stay in that greater state, that higher state, we have to figure out how do we manage the prefrontal cortex? How do we stay up here all the time? And what I want to share with you is a couple, at least two techniques that we can do to make sure that it doesn't shift to the limbic system and we can stay in the prefrontal cortex, our higher self, as much as possible. Good? Mm -hmm. right. So uh, the first, again, and we use this stuff in, in, in the corporate space all the time because you want, you know, people get these jobs in corporations for good reason. They're smart, they're experienced, right? We want them to be able to work in their, in their workplace with their higher self, not being reactive in a negative way to their coworkers or whatever business situation they're in. Again, exact same situation here. When you're trying to enter Zen meditation or prayer or whatever, we want to be able to stay up here. Now, the first piece of um, research I'll share with you is something called the Zagarnik effect. Anyone familiar with this? No. So, uh, Professor Zagarnik was a Russian uh, 
neuroscientist psychologist um, who was doing research in Russia during World War II. When the war finished, she left Russia and moved to Paris to continue her research. And her research was quite interesting. She would go into these French cafes, and if you haven't been to them, you've seen them, all these little tables right outside. And she would sit at the very back, and she would make notes on what was happening. And periodically, she would get up and she would run over to the, the waiter, and she'd say, excuse me, monsieur, that couple at table three, what are they having? And the waiter would say, oh yes, they're having an espresso and a cappuccino and a croissant and a biscotti. Okay, she would write that. And what about the couple at table 11? Ah, oh, he's having an Americano. And, he, and the, the waiter could name everyone's order. Yeah? Then she would go back, she'd wait, and she would watch the, the people enjoy their meal. When they were done, they would drop some coins on the table and they'd head out into the square. At that point, she, uh, Dr. Zagarnik would run over to the waiter and say, Monsieur, that couple that's walking away right now, what was their order? And he could never remember. If any of you have ever worked in food service, you've had this experience. It's called the Zagarnik effect. And what it means is, it's, it's kind of a simple idea. It's a, it's, a, it's a survival technique in the brain, and it simply means things are open in the brain until they're closed. So as long as that order was going on, it was open in the prefrontal cortex. You know, 25 to 30% of our energy goes to maintaining the brain. So every single thing we're trying to remember or maintain or track is taking energy. So as long as that order is open, there's a certain amount of energy going into that. So as soon as they pay and go away, the brain automatically closes it and shifts to another activity. That's why they can never remember the order. Um, this is incredibly important for us because we engage in this behavior every single day. It takes a huge amount of energy from our brain and, and contributes to the overwhelm of the prefrontal cortex. In fact, I have been talking for 10 minutes. I will almost guarantee that as I've been talking, each and every one of you in the room, something else has come into your brain. Yeah? Why? Because in the morning you're taking your shower and you put in all these things you have to do that day. We call them mental tags. Yeah? And as the day goes forward, because it's an open item, your brain just keeps going back to it because it's an open item. Right? I have to go take care of that bill. I have to do this. I have to do that. And every half an hour and hour, it keeps popping up. So when you came in here, you walked through those doors, you had a whole bunch of mental tags open. And as you sit there, your brain will continue to circulate around them and they'll keep popping up taking energy and focus away from this experience you're having right here. Right? Often when that happens, whoever's talking, you may be thinking about that other thing for two minutes. During that two minutes, you have no idea what that person was talking about because you're thinking about that other thing. And the sad part is, you're not getting that other thing done and you're not in this moment either. So you've entirely thrown away the time and the energy you can't recover and it's contributing to the overwhelm of your brain right we do this all the time every day yes it's a very common habit that everyone has the Zagarnik effect the good news is it's a fairly easy thing to rectify okay uh, the first thing you do in order to close those things is to do it 
Once it's done, it's gone. Yeah. So if, for example, before you come into meditation or house of prayer, whatever it is, before you do something, if you can make a list, here are all the distractions, here are all the mental tags I put in, I'm gonna do them right now. And the brain starts closing them down, and all of a sudden, your energy shifts to your prefrontal cortex, and all of your focus is on nothing right in front of you. You bring much greater capacity to your activity, whether it's working at your desk, or prayer, or whatever, ath athletics, whatever it is, right? You're able to shift that energy back. I will um, just back up for a second, because the, the theme of the talk today is the three R's, rules, rituals, routines. This is an expression I've come up with because in our research, when we go and look at the most successful people in all the different fields, whether it's business or politics or athletics, whatever, what we discover the one thing all of the most successful people in the world have in common is the ability to be focused and concentrated. That's what distinguishes them from everyone else. An extraordinary ability to be focused and concentrated. It takes them to a completely different level. And they use a number of techniques, including the Garnick effect, to increase their focus and concentration. Now, one common mistake we all make is, you know, we just went through New Year's, and a lot of us will have our, you know, list of things we want to do. That we want to lose weight, we want to do this, and no one ever does any of those things. Right? <laughs> um, pretty much, pretty low success rate. And the reason for that is many of us try to modify our life to make it better through um, will, right? Through my willpower, I will make this thing happen, damn it, right? It's like, I am going to lose 10 pounds and get to one, and it never happens. Why? Because uh, Dr. Kelly McGonigal has done research on willpower, which she's discovered is we don't have nearly as much willpower as we all think we have. Not even close. For the average person, willpower is over by 11 o'clock. If you, 11 a.m., right? If you make it through lunch, God bless you, you're not making it through dinner. <laughs> That's why if you go back, talk to any HR person, they will tell you the worst things that happen in an organization always happen at the end of the day. The things that you're not supposed to eat, you're eating at night. The things you don't want to drink, you're drinking at night. The things you don't want to say, you're saying at night. Because you have no willpower anymore to be able to modify your behavior. We all get in trouble at night. Now, what all of the most successful people understand is you never, ever rely on willpower as a way to improve or modify your life. Never. What all of the most successful people do is they rely on the three R's. Rituals, routines, and rules. So, for example, if you look at, uh, some of you may know, I, I had the honor of working with the previous uh, residents of the White House, not the current ones. Um, and... If you looked at uh, President Obama and Michelle Obama, they did the exact same thing that the majority of, of Fortune 500 CEOs do very first thing in the morning. They get up and they do something. What do you think they all do? Exercise. They go to the gym. They go to the gym. Barack Obama, Michelle, the majority of Fortune 500, they do, it is their routine. It is their rule. It is their ritual. Okay? They just do it, and they get all the, obviously, the physiological, psychological benefits from it as well. But this is not a new concept for any of us. I'm going to assume every single one of us in this room brushed our teeth before we went to bed last night, yes? We did. 
<laughs> Why did you brush your teeth last night? No, no. Right, but who, how did you know to do that? Your dent, only your dentist? Yeah, your mom and dad, exactly. So, and is this a routine, you do it every night? Is it really hard to do, or you just kind of just do it? You just do it, exactly. So God bless our parents, and you should bless them afterwards. Um, because of the way we were born, by the age of two or three, we all automatically just do this routine every night. And we get all the benefits for decades to come, and it takes no energy or effort. This is the power of the three R's. To create these rules, rituals, routines, where we just automatically, with no willpower, no energy, no consciousness, right, we get all the benefits. Now the question for us in whatever stage of our life is, where do we want our life to go next? And what routine do I have to put in my life to get me there? Because it's not going to happen with willpower. You just have to bring this ritual routine into it. So going back to the Zygarnik effect, it's a really good habit, if you will, or a routine to say, all right, I'm about to engage in something that requires full concentration. I need to get rid of these brain tags. So my habit is going to be to get rid of it all. So I can shift all of my energy, all of my focus on this activity. So whether it's before you come in this door, you stay in your car, you spend 10 minutes getting rid of all those brain tags, right? Or if you can't do them, the second best thing to do is to do a to-do list, right? Write it down, put it where you can see it, get it out of your brain so you can close all those distractions and be fully present and focused. Okay. Uh, it's a great, great technique and the results, again, the, the results are immediate. We have to recognize how our brain just goes off in all these different directions, takes us out of the moment, and here's the technique to help bring us back. Let me share another uh, technique with you called the Premack Principle. This is developed by Dr. David Premack, who's a professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and what Dr. Premack researched his entire life was, how does the order of things affect the outcome of things? If I bake the pie in this order, this is what it's going to taste like. If I bake it in this order, this is what it's going to If I change how I clean my room in this order, this is going to be the result. If I do it in this order, this is going to be the result. And eventually, Dr. Premack started to work with people in offices. And what he discovered was um, a really interesting thing that if you worked with uh, the, the average person, the way they order their day is they start the day doing the things they, that are easiest, that they liked the most, that were, you know, they call low-hanging fruits, and they would push back at the end of the day the stuff that they didn't really want to do. It was kind of onerous and stinky. It's like, I don't, I'm going to you know, push that back. What Dr. Premack discovered in his research was if you flip that order, if you do the most challenging, worst things at the beginning of, the, of your day, um, your day got uh, up to 50% more productive. Huh. It was a massive jump in, in productivity. And all the reports came back, people saying they were much happier. That looming black cloud was gone. They actually enjoyed their day. Their blood pressure went down. There was, they, had, they had a much more pleasant experience at work. Simply by changing the order of the work they already had to do. Now, I would argue... I, I remember when I uh, first saw the research and I, you know, my, my group together and we were discussing this, like, how can changing the order jump productivity that much? It just doesn't make any sense. And then one of the women in my group said, uh, duh, it makes perfect sense. I said, all right, explain this to me. 
and they said, all right, think about this. Let's do a thought experiment. Imagine you're a kid, right? You're at the table and your parent comes in and says to you, all right, honey, here's our dinner tonight. It's five courses, six courses, okay? And your parent says, now the research shows as long as you eat everything, it's the same amount of minerals and nutrients and vitamins, right? So tonight is an experiment. You can eat the dinner in any order you want, as long as you eat it all, okay? What's the first thing you're gonna eat? What's the first? <laughs> right? First thing you eat, of course, everyone says that, right? Uh, then what are you gonna eat? <laughs> and what's going to happen is, uh, you're going to be there at midnight with the green beans and Brussels sprouts, right? And your parents saying, yeah, I just eat the Brussels sprouts so I go to bed. Mommy's really tired. Daddy has to go to work. Eat a minute, right? Um, which isn't the most pleasant way to have a dinner, right? Um, but our parents were geniuses, and what they did was they put dessert at the very, very end. And all of a sudden, by changing the order, you have a very fluid, pleasant meal. Genius. And this is what Dr. Premack discovered in his research. If you just change the order of things, you get entirely different results. Okay? So you start your day with the most difficult, hardest stuff that you just don't want to do. Okay? Um, the running joke in my team in my office is uh, if someone gets a call from me um, <laughs> first thing in the morning, they're the worst thing I have to do that day. <laughs> this is called the worst first principle. Okay? You start your day doing the worst things you have to do, and then you, you let the day flow. I also, by the way, uh, you know, my, my kids just roll their eyes because when I pick them up from school, we're talking about homework, I always start with what's the hardest piece of homework you have to do. You want to go play, you want to do all these things. The, the way to finish your homework quickest and be able to do all those other things is to start with the most difficult. And it will entirely change the output and outcome. So this is also true for, so this is true in our workplace, it's also true in our meditative or prayer practice, right? Um, this is ideally the best part of your day, I would hope, right? So before you come in here, you want to take those nagging things that you have to do and accomplish them before you come in here. In my case, you know, in terms of my business, it's usually talking to attorneys uh, or, or doing certain, you know, tax stuff, right? I just get that out first thing in the day and the rest of my day is much more pleasant. So you have, you know, if you're starting services at 10.30, it gives you a couple hours to get those, those things that are nagging out of the way. So you come in here much lighter, less burdened. And your brain is able to shift its energy to this really important community and the important things you have to, to experience here. Um, so again, I encourage you, not just here, but in your day-to-day -day life, uh, think about ordering your day, making the most difficult things at the beginning of the day, right? And taking all those things that are going to constantly distract you and either writing them down or doing them very first thing. And you're going to see measurable, we see this all the time, measurable uh, results, but also being a lot happier and being able to focus and concentrate, which is, again, the secret to uh, the success of no matter what it is you're trying to do in your life, whether it's your relationships or work or prayer or whatever it is. We want to be successful. It's all about managing the prefrontal cortex making it present and these are <laughs> typical ways in which we by the way sabotage ourselves no one's doing this to us these are habits we've engaged in that hurt our own prefrontal cortex 
and have our own, hurt our own ability to be happy and be productive <coughs> and achieve the things we want to do. These are two quick techniques you can take away that can immediately change those results. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, and my mother didn't raise me very well, so I'm a little rough around the edges. Um, my language isn't always clergy-like, uh, so I'll say things in meetings, and some of the other clergy are like, really, you are gay? I'm like, <laughs> um, so I, often when I talk, I don't talk in kind of um, high flute and Pollyanna ways. I like to be very concrete, so I, I'm going to share this with you. It's going to sound a little Pollyannish and idealistic, but I want to explain why it's not. It's incredibly powerful. So when we look at, to your point, a solution, what can we do to deal with the fact that people are living in, they're overwhelmed with technology, they're overwhelmed with, with the society and, and you know, our responsibilities and everything that's happening, so we live in the Olympic system. What do we do about that? When we have so much anger and tribalism and all that happening in the country, what's our solution? And the answer is, interestingly to me, uh, love and compassion. Now again, I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. Let me explain why. Technically, in terms of neuroscience, why that works. Because the problem is, if you're a um, neuroscientist and someone comes to you with brain trauma or you're a therapist, one of the most difficult challenges is assessment. What part of your brain is not working right now? Right? If you misdiagnose it, you're not going to come with the right solution. So when we're talking about these people that we're frustrated with, what part of the brain isn't working? If I don't understand that, I have no way to come back and, and have a response to that. The fascinating thing is love and compassion is the only thing that always works. And the reason for that is this. Let's look at the three spheres. Uh, the bottom one, the limbic system, which has to do with survival and hate and anger and all that sort of stuff. If you come to a person with love and compassion, you're not a threat to them. So that part of the brain turns off. If anger meets anger, this gets fired up. I have to protect myself. I have to protect my tribe. I have to protect my principles and what I believe in. But if you're coming to them open, with love and compassion, you're not a threat. It's hard to turn it off. If you think about the center part of attraction, human beings were wired to be attracted to love and compassion. Who doesn't want love and compassion in their life? So if I'm trying to make decisions about who to be attracted to and who not to be, a person's coming to me with love and compassion, that's attractive. I'm going to embrace them. And finally, when you look at the prefrontal cortex, which is all about community and connectedness, nothing connects more than love and compassion. That's the definition of it. So if I come to you with love, we're connected, this gets fired up. So just having that one position in your life Love and compassion turns off all of these things that are a challenge and lights up that part of the brain we want everyone to be lit up with. So when we're challenged about, I don't know how to talk to this person, that's your fallback always. It's always going to work. Charles, extinguishing uh, power break on the order of service.